And now, the Street Photography Magazine podcast with your host, Bob Patterson. Welcome back to the Street Photography Magazine podcast. I'm your host, Bob Patterson, publisher of Street Photography Magazine. And we have a special guest this week. It's Paul Frames. Paul uh, lives in British Columbia, up there in Canada in the Great White North. Although not 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 so white up there, yeah. Uh, if you if you remember the the uh, oh what was it? it was a Saturday Night Live? Oh, whatever. We won't talk about that Bob anyway. Hi, Bob and Doug. That's right with the toques. <laughs> those guys. Yeah, yeah, those guys. How's it going, eh? Yeah. <laughs> I used to live very close to Canada, but Ontario. Anyway. So uh, yeah, so Paul uh, Paul is uh, he's a longtime photographer, amateur photographer. He he um, also does some some professional type work as well. And for like over twenty years, he's been teaching workshops, uh, which we're actually gonna gonna talk about. I um, we connected just a few weeks ago. Um, he teaches a workshop about using classical composition for street photography. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. I um, I attended like a demo of it and was really blown away by what he teaches. And I just knew that I had to get him on here to share that information with you. And so you can get to know him more in case you want to learn learn more about, um, about um, I don't want to call it a process, but about the way he has a method to teach you how to compose. Yes. That, you know, because so many times you hear people saying, your composition's weak, you know, compose better. Okay, what does that mean? What can I look for? <laughs> and he's got, he has an easy way to understand at least one type of composition. Yeah. And uh, I like that, you know, you, you, you know, you need, need to give, give us things that we can grasp and understand. And uh, so, so I like that. And that's what he's going to talk about. So, Paul, I guess before we get too deep into things, why don't you take a few minutes just to tell us about yourself and, you know, how you got into photography and how you made this discovery? Certainly. Well, first, thank you very much for inviting me to join you on the show. It's an honor to be here. And to answer your question, uh, as you mentioned, uh, I've been interested in photography for a long time. I had my, what they call the JFK moment, when you first see uh, Robert Frank's The Americans, when I was probably 12 years old in a library, everybody says that they remember where they were when they first saw The Americans, and that's why they call it the JFK moment, because anybody who was alive at the time of his assassination remembers where they were when uh, uh, JFK was assassinated. So, uh, but I didn't pick up a camera until I was 19, and... uh, when I looked at uh, uh, all those famous photographs from Robert Frank and Cortez and Cartier-Bresson, I kind of thought, and I don't know if you felt this way, but I felt like, I could do that. You know, I looked at those pictures and I thought, that doesn't look very hard. I, yeah, I could probably do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and when I was 19, I got a camera and started taking, taking pictures and I realized, hmm, this is actually a little trickier than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> so I started looking for information uh, about how to compose an image. And there was frightfully little. 
Not to say that there isn't information out there, because if you go to a library or online, there's tons of information about photography, the technical parts, and also about composition. But frankly, none of that really helped me. The, the information about composition that's existing today didn't help me. I don't know about other people, but for example, the rule of thirds and leading lines, I understood what they were trying to articulate, but I couldn't actually apply it to create better imagery. And so I went on this kind of quest to, to, to find out how did um, photographers like Cartier-Bresson uh, compose with such precision and, and make everything just kind of work? How, how did they get that magic? What was the secret sauce that they were using? Because clearly they were using something that I knew nothing about. And when I was uh, uh, in my early 20s, I stumbled across a video uh, uh, about Cartier-Bresson. It's him talking about what he's trying to do. And I thought, oh my God, this is the Holy Grail, you know, because he's going to explain how he does it. Uh, and I came across this uh, clip I'm going to play for you. It's just maybe uh, sure. 20 seconds. Can I do that? Yeah, sure. Go right ahead. Okay. The greatest joy for me is geometry. That means a structure. Uh, you can't go shooting for shapes or patterns and all this, but it's a sensuous pleasure, an intellectual pleasure at the same time, to have everything in the right place. It's a recognition of an order which is in front of you. So I heard, I heard that uh, quote. I heard Cartier-Bresson mention that for him the most important thing is geometry. And that's when I realized, Bob, uh-oh. There's this whole other aspect to photography or image making that I don't know anything about. I mean, when he said geometry, I was thinking, what is he talking about? What what does that even mean, geometry? I mean, I knew what geometry was, but for me, geometry was confined to the world of math, right? Not, yeah. not uh, art or photography and all that fun stuff, geometry was something boring that I learned uh, in math class. And so uh, I just thought, oh, my God, I, I, I got to figure out what this means. And um, it wasn't until years later that um, in my frustration, I uh, asked a, a friend of mine who is a fine art painter to look at my photographs and help me to understand what's wrong with them. And uh, because we met in a cafe, what she did was she took some napkins and cropped my photographs and said to me, presented them to me and said, the problem with your pictures is they don't balance. Do you know what I mean? And I, I said, oh, yeah, yeah, balance. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Balance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She said, so now I've cropped them so they balance. Do you see how they're balanced now? And I said, oh, yeah, 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 sure. Yeah. But I really, I had no idea what she was talking about. <laughs> and uh, she knew that I didn't know what I was talking about. And I knew that I didn't know what I was talking about. <laughs> I, I, I didn't know what to do. So I went away from that conversation with the idea that maybe balance is a key, but um, really no idea how to do it. And then uh, sometime after that, and this is still, you know, looking through all the books and going online and stuff like that, and there was no information. That's the interesting thing about this is that this information was really only passed uh, between master and apprentice. Um, in European languages. It's never been actually documented or written down in English. And that's why uh, it's very interesting. People like Robert Frank, uh, Willem de Kooning, 
kind of brought it with them. You probably know that, uh, you know, Robert Frank, for example, is not American born. He was born in Switzerland. Mm. So he apprenticed with uh, uh, people over in Switzerland who taught him this stuff and he brought it with him. And uh, he was already head and shoulders above everybody else in terms of capability because he had these skills. Same thing with people like Willem de Kooning, who's an abstract painter. And you no, know, many people feel that abstract painting is just like a childlike finger painting exercise with no form or structure. And in most cases, I actually agree with that sentiment. But in the case of, for, for example, uh, Willem de Kooning, he is as precise in his use of structure and form as Cartier-Bresson uh, or, or other people like that. And so it's like, hmm, all these European people seem to have a clue about composition, but uh, the rest of us are just kind of floundering. Uh, <clears throat> and um, uh, one day, um, just out of sheer frustration, I tried a different method. I tried something completely different, and the coin finally dropped. I got it. I understood how to compose an image using balance. And from that moment on, I felt like Julie Andrews uh, in The Sound of Music. I just wanted to shout it from the hilltops. <laughs> so uh, I, uh, I designed this uh, photography workshop uh, to articulate these ideas. And I did a lot of uh, research and development of this, presenting at local community centers and so forth, and just ironing out all the kinks until I could consistently and successfully articulate these ideas to other people that didn't know anything about it so that they could also use these ideas to uh, uh, compose uh, images having control of every millimeter of the frame. I'd like to take a quick break to thank the Street Photography Magazine subscribers for your support. We couldn't do this without you. You may have noticed that we don't sell advertising or sponsorships in the podcast or inside Street Photography Magazine itself. And that's because we want to be completely objective about the work we publish and the services and gear that we cover. Our only constituent is you, our listeners and readers. So if you like what we're doing, you can support the show by subscribing to Street Photography Magazine. It's only $5 per month, and you can do it by visiting streetphotographymagazine.com slash subscribe. And now back to the show. So what was your, what was the aha moment that, 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 that turned on the light bulb for you? Well, that's uh, a good question, Bob. After years and years of taking crummy pictures and every once in a blue moon taking one that just by kind of dumb luck, honestly speaking, worked, I just got up to the point where I realized, you know what, I, I, I'm in my 50s. I've been taking pictures since I was 19. We've got to do something different now. We either have to, you know, figure mm. out how to be able to take pictures or stop. It's just I had to be honest with myself that I'm not a good photographer because most I take tons of pictures and only have a few that were decent. So uh, what I tried to do was um, I tried to segment a picture. I tried to build the picture using parts instead of what I was doing before, Bob, I was, I was looking for ready-made, what they used to call Kodak moments, where all you had to do was pick up your camera, 
and boom, you'd have it. That's what I was hoping for. I was hoping for something really dramatic. I was always waiting for something like the Hindenburg to crash or something <laughs> so I could capture those moments. But uh, uh, of course, those moments never present themselves. And Kodak situations where everything's pre-composed never present themselves either. Uh, so I thought to myself, what I'm going to do today, something I'm going to do something different is I'm just going to look for pieces that are interesting and then aggregate them together, try to quote unquote balance them. And so all I did was I took one little segment of something that I thought was interesting and I bought my camera up and I put it over to one side and then I brought something else into the frame and started kind of just kind of going by feel, figuring out, well, how much of each do I need that these are going to quote unquote balance? And I took the picture and I looked at it and I went, oh, Oh my God, this is it. It's now not to say that you have to take pictures the way I just described, but I finally stepped through that doorway of understanding the concept of balance. And then it's interesting because when you look at my photographs up until that point in the day, and I'm, when I say up to that point in the day, I mean every single photograph I'd taken in my life. <laughs> uh, like I said, every once in a while, there would be one or two that were okay, but most of them were poorly composed. And then after that moment, it was consistently well-composed, good images that were saying what I was hoping the image would say. It was telling the story, the emotions, the thoughts, the ideas, the feelings, everything was being uh, successfully communicated from that point on. So that's, to answer your question, that's kind of what happened, how I stepped through that doorway. Huh. Huh. So what's the secret sauce? Well, <laughs> if I may, before I answer that question, which I, okay. I surely will, uh, in the process of uh, building this workshop, um, I came across a video recording from a radio interview with Miles Davis. And I'd like to just play a short uh, like 30 seconds uh, sure. clip of that. And the reason I want to play this is because you probably know that Miles Davis is considered to be one of the most influential musicians of the 20th century. Oh, yeah. He was also an excellent sketch artist. I don't know if people know that, but um, he was sketching all the time. There are interviews with him where uh, the interviewer is asking questions and he's drawing sketches because he was he's he was always sketching because it was an extension of stage performance for him and so i'd like to play this uh short clip because it's the only endorsement of the value of balance across mediums mm -hmm. music or or art or painting so forth imagery it's the only endorsement of balance in the English language by a well-known figure. So uh, before I answer your question, I'd like to just uh, play that, if I may. If you make a drawing, a sketch on a page, you have to balance it. A little over here, a little left, a little left. And that's the way most everything is. Art is. Music, composition. So there it is. And... and it's it's hard to hear because um, 
Miles Davis had a problem with his uh, voice. Um, mm-hmm. So everything he said with a whiz was a whisper. But basically what he said was, um, when you make a drawing on a page, you have to balance it a little over here, a little over there. And that's the way it is with music, art, and composition. So in that brief uh, little clip, he's basically articulating the importance of this thing, these ideas that essentially have been lost. Uh, Bob, these ideas got lost uh, after World War II. Yes, there were artists who were using these these ideas after World War II, like Willem de Kooning, like uh, Robert Frank, like Cartes and and, uh, uh, Henri Cartier-Bresson. But all of those artists learned these ideas before World War II. Henri Cartier-Bresson, for example, when he picked up a camera in 1929, 1930, 1931, right out of the box, this guy was ready to make fantastic pictures. And why was that? It's because 20 years prior to that moment, he had been under the tutelage of uh, a famous painter who taught him these ideas. So when he picked up a camera, he was magically, he said that he did one test roll just to make sure that he had the exposures correct. And then after that, he was producing world-class images because he more than anyone else uh, had uh, the training and the experience of balance. So when he was talking about geometry, this is what he was talking about. This is the secret sauce that got lost, and this is what I figured out and what my workshop is all about. It's basically a reintroduction or a renaissance of these lost ideas about how to compose an image using balance. So to answer your question, how do you actually balance uh, uh, an image? The most simple way to explain it is, if it, and by the way, do you have any questions or, or comments before I, I give that answer? No, go, go into that now. Yeah. Okay. So the simplest way to explain it, Bob, is if you divide your viewfinder in the middle, all you have to do is make sure that all the elements on the left equal mathematically all <laughs> about all the elements on the right. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, that's impossible, man. There's no way that you can do that. It would take forever. What, are you going to use a calculator? Or are you going to use a, a measuring stick? Come on, that's just not possible. Well, if you're thinking that, I can completely relate and understand because learning to balance an image is like learning to balance a bicycle. Uh, when uh, a bicycle was first presented to me as like a nine or a 10 year old, uh, I looked at it and I thought, there's no way I'm going to be able to sit on top of this thing and have only two little skinny wheels touch the ground and me balance on top of it. It just doesn't make sense, right? When you look at it empirically, riding a bicycle doesn't make sense that this super top heavy thing is going to be able to balance on these little skinny wheels. But we all know that uh, after you practice a little bit, it becomes automatic to the point where you don't even think about it anymore. When you want to go somewhere, when you want to turn, you want to stop, or you want to go, you don't even think about it. And it's just automatic. And that's precisely what happens uh, in imagery. Sorry, did I interrupt you? No, I was going to make, I was just going to make a comment that was like master of the obvious. It's like riding a bike. Yeah. Yeah. Well, even walking, you know, 
Yeah. Uh, you, you, you cannot explain to someone who doesn't know how to do it. The problem with walking is because you learn it uh, before you can really um, uh, properly articulate and understand um, technical concepts. But if hypothetically you had to explain walking to an adult that never did it before, I know that uh, it's, um, it's impossible, but that, that scenario. But you wouldn't be able to do it because it's so complex. All of the muscles and joints and the balancing and the movements, it's just impossible. It would be impossible to explain. You have to contract this muscle and then release this one and you have to balance this part. Can't do it. But uh, through practice, uh, toddlers master it to the point where they never have to think about it again. And it's, I use that as an example because it's the exact same thing with imagery. If you're listening to this podcast now, and you heard me say that the secret or a secret to uh, having precise control over your compositions and successfully transforming your visual experience into a two-dimensional image that tells your story is balanced, then you know, you're probably thinking, well, that's the crock, right? There's no way you can, you can take into account. And it is kind of like accounting, interestingly, because it's like two sides of a ledger that have to equal each other. Uh, but if you practice this thing, just like learning to ride a bike, uh, it will become easier for you. And then at a certain point, it becomes automatic. You often hear artists say, you know, interviews with famous artists, you, the, the, the interviewer says, how do you do it, man? What is the magic that you're using? Yeah. And they often say very disappointingly. I always, and I get this from actors too, when, when you see interviews with, with people like Robert De Niro and stuff like that, it's always the same answer that they give. They go, when they're asked, well, what's the secret to your method? How do you do it? And they just go, yeah, I don't know. I just, <laughs> I just do it. I just, yeah. uh, I kind of have a feel like I can't really explain it to you. It's just, it's mm -hmm. just this thing that I do. I don't know. Well, what's going on for these people is that they have developed these subconscious subroutines to be able to uh, do these things. So artists, even though they say they don't know what it is they're doing, they had to first understand these concepts, practice them, and then forget them. If, if when I go out and take photographs, for example, if I had to consciously take into account every single little piece of an image and make sure that the two sides equal each other, it would take me all day. And then I would simply lose interest and not take the photograph. But uh, I've practiced it enough so that like riding a bike, um, as soon as I pick up the camera, I can just kind of gauge it quickly, look around and say, uh, I need a little bit more dark over there. And then I take the picture. And uh, so it's good image making, in my opinion, is this confluence of this uniquely human capability to uh, bring emotion and intellect into one precise moment. Uh, up to that moment, uh, Bob, where uh, I figured out how to balance an image, I was only bringing 50% of myself to my pictures, that 50% being the emotion or what I call the impulse to take a photograph. I would have an emotion or a thought or an mm -hmm. idea. Yeah. Uh, I would have an impulse and I would say, oh, look at that moment. There's that thing going on between mother and child or uh, two people or uh, people are my favorite subject. I'm a street photographer as well. And so I would see these moments happening. I'd bring my camera up and I'd get as close as I could, you know, without being uncomfortable. 
and I take the picture. And then I get the picture back and I go, and I don't know if you can relate to this at all, but I would look at my shots. Oh, yeah. This, this shouldn't be there. Or why is that there? Or why is this big empty space? Or who are these people back here? That has nothing to do with it. Blah, 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 on and on. And I'd look at my pictures and every single one of them nearly was a dud because I wasn't in control of the image making. But now, with these ideas of balance, I can account for every millimeter of the frame. In fact, uh, Cartier-Bresson says, and this is paraphrasing because I don't know the quote exactly, but he says, uh, the difference between a, a good and mediocre photograph is millimeters. And I totally agree with that. Uh, a photographer has to be responsible for and be able to account for every millimeter of the frame. If you cannot, then you don't really have control. Uh, when, and the reason I say that is because when we look at our photographs and when others look at our photographs, the human eye is extremely sensitive to changes. We can detect tiny little things in the image. So it behooves us when we're taking photographs that when we're creating the images, we have the same level of sensitivity that we do when we look at photographs. You often may have experienced that, you know, when you take a picture, you're thinking one way, but then when you look at it, you're thinking another way. And, and, and what the balance methodology does is it closes the gap between those two so that when you're creating an image, you're thinking with that same kind of precision and um, sensitivity that you have when you're looking at a picture. So, yeah, you know, I just heard a quote the other day that said, the photograph must be better than the thing you're taking a photograph of. Huh. What, uh, what does that mean to you? That means to pay closer attention to what I'm photographing. <laughs> exactly like you said. Yeah, I, I kind of... Because yeah, it's I the other elements saying, as well. Yeah. I, I think what that is trying to say is that our three-dimensional experience of reality is a, is a phenomenal experience. Um, and that's why oftentimes we see things that are beautiful, you know, sunsets and canyons and blah, all those kinds of things. They create a real emotional stir in us. But when we take the photograph of those things, they usually come out crummy. I used to know a guy who was a, a motion picture colorist. Uh, their job is to make sure that the color of each shot matches each other. Because mm -hmm. throughout the day, the color of light is changing from uh, ultraviolet to uh, infrared. Mm -hmm. And so all day long, the color of shot. And so his job was to make sure. The but um, whenever a sunset shot uh, came onto his desk that he had to correct, he would call it AFS. <clears throat> another that? sunset. Another oh. sunset. <laughs> because, uh, yeah. Because we like to take photographs of sunsets. I'm not saying that sunsets are bad. But this is a clear example of the problem that your quote is trying to address. It's saying that um, you can't just point your camera at stuff that's interesting and hope that it's going to work out. Because it usually, and I can tell you from experience, like <laughs> nine times out of ten, it won't work. Because you haven't taken into consideration these subconscious things that viewers expect. As, as humans, we, we are attracted to, we are gravitating towards order and structure. Um, 
Uh, and if you can't present a story with, for example, I just made a, a video of this for my um, uh, YouTube uh, channel um, a couple of days ago. And I started out with the premise that if you're a writer, you unfortunately have to capitalize the first letter in the first word of a sentence. You just, you have to do it. And you also have to put a period, a little dot at the end of the sentence. If you don't do those two things, even if what you have to say is super interesting, people are going to lose interest very quickly. Sure. If, you're, if you're a musician and you just want to pound your fists on the keyboard, the same thing's going to happen. People are going to lose interest very quickly. So if you're a writer, it behooves you to use structure and form. If you're a, a musician, same thing. And the same thing for photographers or image makers in general. These ideas don't just pertain to street photography, all of art. The interesting thing is, Bob, I've taught this class to hundreds and hundreds of people, including um, fine art painters and cinematographers who had no idea about these concepts because they've been lost. It's not our fault. I, 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 when I got into photography, I struggled with the exact same problem. I really, I didn't understand, and, and the ideas of composition that are presented to us today, uh, I don't find helpful. And so this concept of balance, I'm thrilled to be the one to kind of bring this back. My goal is to bring it back into common knowledge. So not just practitioners like you and me, but people who love art, who like to look at it. They're not necessarily creators of imagery. But they like to go to art museums or flip through books or look on the internet and look at famous paintings. They will also be able to see artwork, photography, painting, sculpture on a whole other level now. Not just the, don't get me wrong, the emotional experience of looking at a Monet painting is fantastic. The, 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 the color palette that he had, uh, the style of impressionism, uh, the subject matter, it's all a wonderful emotional experience. But there's this whole other uh, experience that people are not consciously aware is happening. For example, in every Monet painting, he's one of my favorite painters because he, his work exhibits this precise use of this exact structure that I'm talking about. I defy you. Any painting that he ever created, in my opinion, exhibits precise use of balance. And, and you may recall from the workshop we looked at uh, a number of mm -hmm. uh, his paintings, as well as uh, Degas. I feel that um, Monet and Degas uh, uh, of that time period were the best at bringing together the emotions, the beautiful colors, but also this intellectual, geometrical uh, capability that Cartier-Bresson, uh, I heard him say 30 years ago and thought, uh-oh, <laughs> what does that mean? Now I know what it means, and I think you know what it means. And I'm hoping through the workshop to have the rest of the world be able to, if they so choose, create imagery using geometry, but also, even if they're not practitioners, look at paintings and photography and be able to enjoy it, not just on the emotional level, but also on the intellectual, structural, geometrical uh, level. You know, I, I've had the opportunity to be a judge in many photo contests over the last 10 years. And I happened to discover, actually, a few years ago, 
you know, and, and I, I wanted to have a way to be able to evaluate photographs fairly. Right. You know, I mean, it's a subjective thing, but, you know, maybe to be more objective about it. And I learned a, an acronym from a photographer, the guy is a comedian as well, Craig Sametko. Happened to hear him on a podcast. He's on the BNH podcast. Uh, he's also a Leica ambassador. And uh, it's a very simple thing. It's called the, uh, the Photographer's Diet, D-I-E-T. You know, again, a simple way to remember something. You know, D stands for design. I stands for information. E, emotion. And T is timing. And if you have one of those, you probably have a pretty good, pretty good photo photograph. Two of those, better photograph. If you have all four elements, you've got one badass picture. Right. And like uh, and so when we were talking before, it made me think, well, your concept, your practice is probably the D, the design. Or yes. the composition. Yes. And how how do you incorporate the other three elements? You, you have brought up emotion and and uh, well, that's the truth. How, how does how does this all fit together? I really I really like that question. That's a that's an excellent question. How do you get the emotion right? If uh, what I'm teaching in terms of how to use balance to compose an image. Uh, brings in the intellectual, the design. Uh -huh. uh, how do you bring in the emotion? Well, and this is just my opinion, but the the thing about humans is that we're primor we're primarily emotional beings. Oh yeah, we we tend to tout ourselves or think of ourselves as intellectual beings, but in my opinion, we are not. We are emotional beings. When we're going through the world every day. When we're walking down the street, wherever, we're responding with our emotions, not our intellect. Intellect is something that we have to choose. Yeah, man. You may, yeah. You may, you may know that uh, salespeople uh, exploit this. So they know that when someone is buying uh, an object, a, 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 a service or some whatever it is, they're buying on emotion and then they're using intellect later to justify what yeah. they what they their emotions uh made the, 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 everybody's making decision on emotion that's why you know uh, cars for example they're sexy and they're powerful and blah, blah blah but all we need is this box that gets us from a to b and do it as most fuel efficiently as possible and uh, have the most uh reliability and longevity of the machine but who buys a car because it uh is reliable and lasts a long time. Nobody. Everybody's buying cars because they're sexy and fast and powerful and they express something about that person's personality or what they want to project to the world. That's how we do it. Later, we'll come back and say, oh, well, yeah, it is fuel efficient. And, you know, the consumer report says that it's reliable and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> let's, let's just be 100% honest. When we buy crap, we're buying it on emotion. And that's how we operate in the world. So when you ask the question, Bob, how do we bring the emotional part into uh, image making? Well, I think that we can't help it. I think that humans are like a cookie monster. We just, we can't help it. it we're, 
we're operating full-time emotionally. If ever I bring up my camera, it's because I'm having an emotional response to something. So I think that everyone that's listening to this podcast already has that part. We don't need to worry too much about uh, emotion. I mean, unless, uh, you know, <clears throat> for example, uh, do you know the painter uh, Piet Bondurant? No. Uh, do you know the Chanel logo with the square, the yellow square and the red square and the white square? Yeah. The Chanel logo is a direct ripoff of uh, Piet Mondrian, his paintings. His paintings are just cubes. And if you look up Piet Mondrian, M-O-N-D-R-I-A-N, you'll you'll look at his paintings and go, hey man, that's the Chanel logo. What the hell's going on here? Well, the reason I mention him is because the beauty of Mondrian is that he reduced uh, painting. His style of painting is purely intellectual. It's to say, and it uses balance. So what his paintings, if you, if you, if you look at them, you'll see they, they balance precisely, but it's a purely intellectual exercise. He's saying, well, this really bright red, and we know that right, red is a powerful uh, color because when we go to a live sporting event and we look across at the other audience, anybody who's wearing red really sort of stands out in the crowd. So we know that red is a more powerful color. So what he did was he said, so I know that red is powerful, so I don't need as much of it. So it's going to be smaller. And then I'm going to balance it down over here or on the other side of the image with a less intense color that's going to be bigger, like a blue or a yellow. So look at Montreal paintings and you'll see that they are just purely intellectual, but using this concept. But he's kind of, uh, Montreal is kind of an exception. Uh, he did approach image making from a purely mathematical, geometrical, um, intellectual perspective, that thing that, that kind of triggered my fear when I saw that video of uh, Cartier-Bresson when he said, my main concern is geometry, and I didn't know what the heck he was talking about. But that's, that's what the, you know, uh, Mondrian is doing, just purely from an intellectual perspective, is making sure that everything mathematically works out. But for most of us, especially street photographers, we're moving about through the streets uh, responding to things that are happening emotionally. Uh, we see interactions between people. We see something happening to an individual, or perhaps it's the relationship between uh, people and their environment. There, you know, something kind of um, <clears throat> juxtapositional between what the person is doing and maybe a billboard sign behind them. So all of those things are automatically happening. So that's a long way of answering the question, but basically, in conclusion, I feel that people already have the emotion. What they don't have automatically is the structural elements, and that's what I'm hoping to give people so that they can bring their emotions and precision structure to creating an image that has it all. Because when you take a photograph of something, something is being taken away. And that's why I think your quote earlier was really good, because the picture has to be better than the reality. And I think what the, uh, that, that person was saying is, because three-dimensional reality, the experience of which is so incredible, <clears throat> we need to add something when we're reducing that three-dimensional experience with sound and, and colors and blow all. When we're, when we're reducing that to two dimensions on a piece of paper, we need to put something back in there uh, so that it's better 
than the real experience because we've actually taken away a great deal. We've taken away the third dimension and we've taken away a whole bunch of things. It's just an image on a piece of paper. So that thing that we can give back to make the image better than the reality is structure and form. But then when we talk about emotion, I mean, you feel the emotion when you take the photo. Oh, wow, look at that. Yeah. Okay. How do you get the viewer to feel that emotion or their own emotion around that particular subject? Or maybe you can't. Oh, I, I certainly think yeah. that you can. I think that viewers are looking for structure. We want to make things work. And let me give you an example of what I'm trying to say. The first uh, uh, film I ever made, a uh, movie that I ever made, was a documentary about a Karelian. Um, yeah, Karelian is basically like a piano, except it, 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 it's it, an arrangement of bells from like 10 feet oh. tall to about uh, two inches mm -hmm. high. Yeah, and they're, they're all connected to a, yeah. a thing that's kind of like a piano, but you have to hit it with your fists because mm -hmm. it requires a lot of um, force in order for the hammer to hit the bell properly. Um, and so to make this documentary, I had, I had to run up to the roof, uh, not to the roof, but just below the roof, there was a room where all the bells were situated, and I had to film the bells being hit. Clap, 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 clap. And then I had to run down this circular stairway and film the guy who was actually playing the Carillion like this. Well, guess what? The, the filming that I did of the bells didn't match what this guy was doing with his hands because they were done at two different times. I wasn't in the same place at two different times. I only had one camera and one knee. Yeah. But when I put the two together, Bob, they actually work. And that's because the human brain is always uh, seeking order. It's trying to make things work. So even though it didn't technically, even though uh, the bell uh, being hit didn't actually line up with the sound that was being produced in the movie or the guy actually hitting the, none of that was aligned. It was all out of sync. <laughs> but when you watch the movie, you go, oh, cool. That's uh, it all works because we're trying to make it work. And when people look at your photographs, they're trying to make those work as well. Um, I, I apologize. I've forgotten the question that you asked. I got so into the. No, 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 that's okay. That's okay. We were talking again? about emotion, but that that's. Uh... Oh. So. Yeah, so people want to get the story. They know that if you're putting a photograph in front of them, whether it's online or on a wall or just by passing a paper image to them, they know that you're trying to tell a story, so they're trying to make it all work. So you've got that on your side. You just need to present it with some form or structure. You can't just bang on a piano randomly or uh, type without you know periods and commas and stuff like that. The form... Like watching a movie, you know, sometimes like when you watch a Spiel, when I watch a Spielberg movie, I know that I'm in good hands. I don't mm -hmm. have to worry. How is this? Is this going to be presented to me in a way I'm going to understand? I can just sit back and I can just enjoy the emotions and the story because I know that the structure is there. And it's the same thing with photography. If you can present to your viewer that everything has been worked out for you, that, that this, the structure and the form the geometry has been carefully uh, set, then they can just enjoy the, the story. They don't have to wonder, well, what is the photographer trying to say? I mean, what what is that thing there for? What Why is that there? And, and I, I'm sorry, I, I don't get it. I'm, no, I don't know what you're trying to say. But if you very clearly uh, 
you know, create instruction, form a kind of a bath that people can sit in and enjoy, then they can get to the story, to the emotions that you were trying to communicate. Yeah, that, that brings up a good point. Um, just about our conversation, because I know people are listening to this, and it's an audio, I mean, it's audio only, you can't see it. And they're probably thinking, okay, what does that mean? And I, I want to point out that you have several very good videos on your YouTube channel, and we're going to include links to those yeah. in the show notes. So if you if you typically listen to this on iTunes or whatever, you may want to go back, go to the website, and uh, follow the links to some of those videos so you, you can you can see. And then, uh, and then I want to point out one thing that you did for me and was as we were talking and I'm, you know, he, we were doing all this over zoom. So I could, I could see his examples and things, yeah. Paul's examples and things. And it made me start to think about some particular photos that maybe I took recently. And I thought I need to go back and take a second look at how I edited them. I do a lot of dodging and burning. I don't like take things out or any of clone things out or any of that stuff. Yeah. I went back and I reworked a few photos that I took in Greece, for example. And yeah. I think it made them much stronger because I'm thinking about the balance. And then I even cropped them slightly. I know talking to you during that conversation, you said, I, I, you know, I don't dodge and burn or I don't make things lighter. But I think this is a good tool to use to go back and take a look at some of your own work and make some adjustments just just like your friend did with the with the napkins right so you you thank you for bringing that up that's an excellent point which reminds me that i should articulate something very important about this methodology and that is that dark objects appear to have more psychological weight than bright objects why is that well i can answer that question if you want to ask it but the reason I mention is because if what I'm saying is true, that, you know, you divide an image down the middle and then you try to make the two sides of it balance or equal mathematically each other, then you do need to know that darker objects uh, do appear to have more psychological weight than brighter objects. That obviously, when something exists on a two-dimensional plane on a piece of paper in a photograph, they don't have physical weight, but they have psychological weight, which means that um, they appear to be, to look heavier. For example, uh, if I threw a black cardboard box toward you uh, that was empty and a white cardboard box toward you that was empty, before you caught that black cardboard box, you would probably, your brain would anticipate that it was going to be heavier and that you needed to kind of brace yourself to catch it because it was going to be heavier than the white box. It's just something that goes on in our mind and I can explain why. But that's an important thing to know about when you're considering how to balance an image and balance doesn't just have to exist between dark and light balance can exist between animate versus inanimate for example in a photograph where there is a human figure on one side and say just um, inanimate objects on the other like a building or cars and blah 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 the human being is going to have more psychological weight to us just because we relate to humans, we're more interested, uh, we're more attracted and curious about humans than we are of, say, the side of a building. That's just the way we are. So a human or a human figure is going to have more psychological weight 
than uh, buildings and cars and stuff like that. So when you're taking into account, well, how much of this do I need in order to balance how much of that? Uh, do try to remember that dark objects uh, can often appear to look heavier. So that means that you might not need as much of the dark to balance a large, bright area. And when you look at famous paintings and photographs, you're going to go, oh my God, this guy's right. I mean, I had that experience. Once I figured out small dark equals large bright, I went back and looked at Matisse and Monet and Degas and de Kooning and uh, uh, Van Gogh. Uh, you Van had Gogh a great experience. And Mondrian and all of these great painters and Cartes and Cartier-Bresson and Robert Frank. And I just went, this is a thing. This is a real thing. This small, dark, large, bright. There, God damn it. Like, how come nobody's talking about this? And in fact, Bob, I've given the workshop to people who said to me, if this is true, how come this is the first time I'm hearing about it? Humans are resistant to new ideas. You know, uh, the airplane and the telephone and uh, a smallpox vaccine and computers all were met with huge resistance because for survival reasons, we tend to resist new ideas. We, In primordial times, we had to go with what we knew because we didn't have time to fool around and experiment with stuff that might not work in order to have food, in order to have shelter and so to survive. We just went with whatever worked the first time. We had to stick with it and reject everything else. So uh, uh, I sometimes do encounter people who just say, you know, this can't be real because never heard of it before. Well, all of those other things <laughs> like the telephone and like the airplane were met with huge derision. People did not accept that they were good ideas simply because it's wired into our brains to reject new stuff. That's what we do. <laughs> yeah, good point. But that brings up something else that crossed my mind is, okay, you, you talk about small, dark, big light yeah. to balance each other out. Yeah. But can't you flip it on its head sometimes and go small, small light, big dark? Because don't forget that our eyes tend to be drawn towards the brightest part Bob, of the frame. It's a lovely, lovely question, Bob, because I struggled with that for the longest time. Um, I did notice this pattern. I mean, the human brain is basically a pattern recognition machine. And mm -hmm. I did notice this small, dark, large, bright pattern amongst uh, many, many paintings. But as you just pointed out, sometimes a small, bright object can be very powerful in mm -hmm. an image. It can be the most dominant. It can, it can attract our attention the most. So doesn't that kind of completely... Uh, throw your theory out the window? Doesn't that kind of just completely throw a wrench in the works and, and dispel this theory altogether? No, well, I don't think so. You could say, you could yeah. say, but the reason <clears throat> in my workshop I uh, teach the idea of small, dark, large, bright is number one, because uh, it's very predominant in imagery, whether it's painting or photography, the concept is quite predominant. In fact, most images that I have seen utilize, that are balanced utilize the concept of small, dark, large, bright. And that's why I teach it. The other second reason why I uh, utilize the concept of small, dark, large, bright is because 
when people are learning something, you have to start somewhere. Uh, when people are learning, they have to have some frame of reference. And because this is brand new information, there is no frame of reference. And so some people can really struggle. And so to keep it simple, and because most paintings and photographs I've seen utilize this concept, that's where I start. But you are 100% correct, Bob. It is possible to balance a small bright object with a large dark object. And I do it, I don't, I wouldn't say I do it all the time, but if a situation presents itself where that is something that's going to work and is necessary, then I do it. Um, uh, but I teach the concept just because you can't come in and start teaching people, well, folks, you just balance anything with anything because it's just, it's too much information for people that are trying to uh, grasp these concepts for the first time. Uh, and because it's quite prevalent, this small, dark, large, bright, but you're absolutely right. Really, anything goes. Um, balance can be between nature and man-made. It can be between hard and soft, light and dark, uh, animate versus inanimate. It's any two contrasting elements, uh, uh, dark and light. But um, if you're at least aware of the concept of this kind of accounting, where you're making one side of the image mathematically equal the other, then you can approach it. And the lovely thing, Bob, about this methodology is the tremendous fluidity, uh, the tremendous improvisational uh, capability that it offers. The existing compositional ideas that are out there today, if you go onto Google and type in composition, you're going to get the rule of thirds, you're going to get leading lines and all that kind of stuff. Imagine what painting and photography would look like if the artists, if the photographers, you know, really followed those ideas, uh, art would look very homogeneous. It would frankly be kind of boring. Mm -hmm. uh, the rule of thirds was actually uh, an oversimplification by an American artist um, uh, in the 1700s. And if you look at his work, it's not very good. <laughs> <laughs> the reason why these ideas caught on is because they're so easy to understand. You can, you can look at the rule of thirds and quickly get it in seconds. And as I mentioned, humans are attracted to structure and order. So when you superimpose that rule of thirds grid with two vertical and two horizontal lines on an image, suddenly we, we start making inferences. Oh, look, that thing aligns with that intersection in the top right and that thing over there. And so this must be a thing, but it's not because as I mentioned with that example of the Carillion, where the guy was playing the, the series of bells like their piano, the documentary film that I made, the, the sound and the image did not align, but we made them align. And when you look at one of those examples of the rule of thirds, where the grid is superimposed over a photograph, we're making it work. But if you know, I know there's some photographers out there that actually etch these lines into their viewfinder of their camera. <gasps> And I just think, oh, my God, you know, you're stunting. Not only are you stunting the possibilities, because with balance, you can put, here's the beauty. If you were to distill the beauty of balance, you can put anything anywhere in the frame. You remember we were looking at those uh, paintings uh, by, um, uh, 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 who's the Dutch painter? Um, Van Gogh. And he was putting things way over on the side, in fact, actually transgressing the border. 
like the doorway in the painting of uh, 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 at Saint Marie, or the thunderstorm, uh, the approaching thunderstorm, where the cloud on the top left is transgressing the left border. Those are technical flaws known as border mergers. There are four types of mergers, by the way. There are border mergers, subject mergers, tonal mergers, and then near mergers. Near merger just means any of the first three, almost. Mm -hmm. So, for example, a classic uh, border merger would be um, you take a full-length photograph of someone and you've accidentally cut off their feet and left too much headroom. That's a classic border merger. Uh, it's, it looks wrong. But um, uh, what I was trying to articulate is that, uh, for example, Van Gogh, especially in the 1890s, to do a border merger was very daring and many people thought it was wrong, but he made it work because he knew he had the uh, compositional control to put anything anywhere he felt like putting it because then he knew if I put the clouds way over here on the top left, that all I had to do was make sure that there were some dark objects over on the far right to counterbalance them. Now, most people, when they look at a painting like that, Bob, they don't know that these things are happening. They just go, I don't know what it is, but it just kind of works. I, I like it, but I don't know why. Well, yeah. now, with these ideas that I've just articulated, people can now look at paintings and enjoy them on that whole other level that's there, but got lost. Yeah. Yeah, I did that. I mean, again, just re-looking at some of my recent photographs, I wound up moving an element all the way to the to the edge, close to the edge. Yeah, because you knew. Yeah, that I you know. Could and it, balance it. Yeah. But if you don't know no about work. balance, you don't yeah. have the control to do that. You have to follow the rule of thirds or just kind of wing it and improvise and hope for the best. Yeah. But now you mentioned that you use uh, these ideas in post-production, which is mm -hmm. very interesting because understanding balance adds a whole new criteria to what should be darkened and what should be brightened, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, now we're not just thinking, well, that thing needs to be darker. We're also thinking on a more um, macro scale, this thing needs to be darkened in order to counterbalance all those bright things over there. Now, I did mention to you that I actually don't uh, like to do post-production. Mm -hmm. And that's not because um, I feel uh, superior or I think that um, post-production is bad. I don't think that they're bad. I don't think that cropping is bad or that dodging and burning is bad. I do personally think that copying and pasting is bad, but that's, you know, just kind of from the world of journalism, you know, you can't, Yeah. If, if there was a journalist, a photojournalist uh, who uh, photographed, um, uh, ironically, uh, a conflict uh, in the Middle East, uh, Israel versus uh, Palestine, and, and he added some smoke, uh, uh -huh. he copied and pasted some smoke from over here, and he put it here and here to <laughs> over-dramatize his picture, and he got fired. Yeah, of course. <laughs> you can't do that in, in journalism. No. <laughs> uh, and, but what I'm trying to say is the reason I don't like, well, the reason I don't like post-production is just because I don't get any pleasure from it. I take photographs purely for yeah. pleasure. Uh, and I don't get pleasure from post-production. That's just a personal thing. I don't think that it's bad. The other reason why I don't um, do post-production is because I can get it in the camera. No, I was going to say that. Yeah, when I'm when I'm composing something, I was just looking at a Cartier-Bresson uh, photograph uh, yesterday, where I could see that 
it was a bunch of um, soldiers in it was uh, Chinese soldiers in the 1940s in a square, in a big parade square, and they're sitting down. And he didn't photograph the soldiers entirely. He took a section of them and put them over to one side. Mm -hmm. And so the, the group of soldiers sitting down is cut off by the, the right uh, frame edge. And then on the left, he's got uh, uh, two little kids uh, in a basically generally white space, which is the parade ground, empty except for these. And so it's the small, dark uh, aggregation of the sitting down soldiers versus the large, bright uh, area of the parade ground. And um, what I'm trying to say by example is that if you understand these concepts, then you can make these adjustments in the camera. You can say, mm -hmm. oh, you know what? All I need to do is shift a little bit to the right. And uh, I don't, or to the, in the case of that photograph, he could have just photographed the soldier sitting down. But what he did was he jogged a little bit to the left and opened up this big bright space in order that the sitting down soldiers balanced with the large bright white space. So you can get it. If you understand these ideas, you can get it in the camera. The other thing, frankly, is I'm lazy. And I don't want to have to spend a lot of time after I've taken a photograph trying to fix the mistakes that I made or, 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 or the weak, uh, not to, and this is not to accuse you of, uh, weak comp, you know, uh, having weak compositions. But if I take a photograph that needs to be fixed later, um, I usually discard it. Um, even Cartier-Bresson said that, uh, he also didn't believe in cropping. He said that, uh, if I have to crop an image, it's usually because the composition was weak and I throw it away. So I guess maybe I'm just following him. <laughs> yeah. But uh, because I understand balance, yeah. I can now, I, I am account, and it's frankly hard to do, to, all, to go all the way to the very top left, or top, top left, bottom mm -hmm. right, top right, bottom right, and everything in between, and thinking about how all of those parts are working together. Damn, that's hard to do. But if you practice it, you can start to do it automatically, like uh, learning to ride a bike. It. And yeah. then when you hit that button, everything is where you need it to be. And it's so satisfying when you have both the emotion and the intellect, this intrinsically human capability to bring those things together in what Bresson called the decisive moment. When you have all of that happening, oh my gosh, it's... It's for me, it's the, the great pleasure of, of uh, photography because um, photography is instantaneous. Uh, you can, if you, if you practice these concepts, you can bring them together into one precise moment and wow. <laughs> oh, that's sad. And again, we've just been talking. Why don't you tell everybody where they can find you? where they can learn more about this methodology, particularly visually, <laughs> since, uh, since it's, been a, uh, uh, it's been an abstract exercise right now. Right. Yeah. Well, uh, I think that uh, within this uh, podcast, you're going to share links to my YouTube, Instagram, and um, TikTok channels so people yep. can um, look at uh, the videos that I've created on this uh, wonderful subject. Uh, but I also uh, host a, uh, a one-hour online uh, workshop through uh, Airbnb Experiences, and I think you'll probably include the link to that as well, where all you mm -hmm. do is you choose the, the time, the date that you want to uh, have the workshop. Uh, it's seven days a week. You just choose which one works for you, and then it'll share with you a Zoom link 
uh, a, a Zoom meeting invite that you put into your calendar, and I'll be there on that day to. Uh, oh. This this workshop um, articulates these ideas. It shows you visually how it works in other paintings and photographs, and then actually gives you an opportunity to try out these concepts. You get to through uh, the technology of Google's uh, Street View. I've curated hundreds of different locations around the world where you can actually pretend that you're walking down the streets. In your case, it was uh, Montmartre in Paris, France. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, we uh, circled around to uh, a shot on a laneway leading up to the Sacre Coeur. And you composed, I assume for the first time in your life, a photograph that uh, had the impulse, had the emotion, uh, the reason why you want to take the picture, but also uh, you were able to bring in the geometry that Cartier-Bresson was talking about 40 years ago that I didn't understand. Oh, I saw the video 30 years ago I didn't understand, uh, but now finally understand and want to share with the world. So it gives you the opportunity to learn the ideas and then actually put them into practice. And then after that, we see how examples of how these things are used in um, architecture, interior design, and motion picture. Some of the best movies ever made, uh, the cinematographers learned these concepts. One example from today is, um, uh, oh, his name is escaping me now. He did, um, he did No Country for Old Men. Oh, uh, yeah. And, and escaping uh, me too. So keep moving. Yeah. <laughs> It'll so, come back to you. Uh, uh, he's one of the only cinematographers today who actually uses the concept of balance. But when you watch his movies, you go, oh, small, dark, large, bright, through every bloody composition. Uh, he's using it. And he's one. Now, he's considered to be the greatest, compos uh, the greatest cinematographer in the history of motion picture. And one of the reasons is because he's one of the few people that actually understands these concepts. The reason I think he's, this happened, he's one of the few that gets it, is because he's also from Europe. Well, he's from England, but he mm. learned these ideas over there. That's really the home of these ideas. And he's old enough. He's in his 70s now. So he probably learned these ideas uh, in the 60s from someone. Uh, the t He went to an art school, by the way. He was going to be an artist, a painter. And he probably learned them from someone. One of his teachers uh, learned these ideas before World War II and passed them on to him. Uh, and so he's been able to utilize them. Roger Deakins is his name. Ah, sir. I knew you were going to remember. Yeah, sir. Roger Deakins. <laughs> but watch his movie. Well, you've watched his movies. No Country for Old Men. And uh, it's just it's a laundry list of great movies. But he has that quote unquote magic, that thing, that ethereal thing that other cinematographers don't have. And it's balanced. So watch his movies now and just enjoy the use of uh, balance. But that's what happens in the rest of my workshop. After you step through that doorway of understanding the ideas and then using them to compose an image, then you get to see how uh, Frank Lloyd Wright used them in, uh, for example, his uh, famous uh, house, uh, Falling Water, which is uh, in mm. Illinois. Uh, and that's in Pennsylvania. Oh, what's that? It's in Pennsylvania. Oh, sorry. Yeah, his oh, other stuff's he, in Illinois. <laughs> he he uh, he used to teach at the University of Chicago, and and he yeah. used uh, woodcuts from a Japanese um, uh, artist, yeah. 
as um, he used them as teaching aids because they, the Japanese, it's part of their culture. When you look at their architecture and their imagery and historically, they've had this long before the Europeans had it. Uh, I don't know how the Europeans got it, whether they got it organically or if they got it from the Japanese influence, but the Japanese had it first. And Frank Lloyd Wright figured it out. He studied these paintings and he used them as teaching aids at the University of Chicago. And he used these ideas to create what are considered, like falling water is considered to be the greatest work of American architecture, period. Uh, the Smithsonian says it's one of the 28 places that you must visit before you die. <laughs> and it's because yeah. he uses balance. It's that that's that's the secret sauce. You know what? That house is probably one of the most uncomfortable places in the United States as well. <laughs> if Why? you've ever been, oh my God, it's all stone. It's cold and damp. It looks great, but it's uncomfortable as holy hell. I wouldn't want to live is that there. Right? Yeah. Oh, but you have well, to see ironic. it. You do. You do have to see it, though. It's, it's yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's it's like funny. built into. <laughs> I didn't know that. Well, I'm only referring to it from a visual perspective. Oh, I'm yeah. In, in how it balances. And so. I know, I know. Up, I actually show you the small, dark, large, bright. You didn't actually yeah. get to see that, but um, uh, your editor did. She went through the whole thing and she saw. Yeah. She saw. <laughs> Ashley. Um, okay, going back to your. the uh, The links I was asking for. Remember, this is a podcast. A lot of people are out walking or running or driving. And is, is there one one link you can give them that they that they can remember? Your YouTube or have you got your Instagram? Well, um, these these URLs are a, a bunch of numbers and letters that you wouldn't want me to. Okay, all right, don't worry about it. If, yeah. you, if you went to any of those places like Instagram or YouTube or Airbnb, uh, you just type in uh, my name, Paul Freems, uh, F is in Frank, R-E, M is in Mary, E-S is in Sam, and uh, they'll come up. Okay, good enough. Well, Paul, thanks. It was, uh, you know, I learned a lot the first time, and I think I learned even more this time. So well, what thank you, you very much. Just out of curiosity, what would you say is the, the biggest thing or benefit that you got from um learning about these concepts i think i think it just you kind of broke me out of not a rut but you just gave me a different way to look at things and like you said it's almost like an aha moment yeah yeah and um the, the small dark large bright is i think it's a great way to teach it yeah and well, as you expanded on it in here today that was super helpful when when I fell on it, and I just fell on it by accident, it was one of the greatest moments of my life. Uh, just the excitement of having all of that finally come together and go, oh, now the world just seems to make sense. And the people, other people that have been through this program, like cinematographers, have told, I've taught this thing to members of the uh, American Society of Cinematography, and they told me that it literally changed the way that they see the world, art, and uh, the way that they create uh, movies. So uh, I hope that uh, other people uh, um, can have that sort of aha experiences. My goal before I'm dead is that this becomes common knowledge. That's really what I'm trying to do is uh, create a renaissance for these ideas that for some reason just got lost after World War II. Your thoughts about the show 
go a long way in helping us decide on the guests and the subjects that we include in each episode. So please take a few moments to write a review in Apple Podcasts or whatever service you use to stream your podcasts. It helps us know if we're on the right track and it helps others to find and enjoy the show. The editor of Street Photography Magazine is Ashley Refo, and our audio engineer is Russell Boyd from WeBit Studios, found at webitstudios.co.uk. I'm Bob Patterson, and this is the Street Photography Magazine podcast, a service of Street Photography Magazine. Mm-hmm.